Today on Seeking Wisdom, we're going to dig in the crates a little bit. Digging in the crates? Yeah, we're digging in the crates. Woo! Let's go. What do we got for them? So you're not going to hear from either of us today. Well, actually, you're going to hear from you. Six Uh, years ago. Six years ago. Yeah, you found... We we happen to be talking about someone today, and you came across this interview. You interviewed uh, Constant Contact's Gail Goodman, who is a SaaS OG. The original SaaS OG. I interviewed her back in 2010. Uh, public company CEO, took it from nothing to something. Yeah. Uh, just a terrific interview, and I uh, enjoyed my time with her. This was a different perspective for you. This was uh, this was your first like CEO. This was Performable CEO DC, right? Yeah, this is back in the day, Performable CEO DC. This is me getting some wisdom from, from an OG, Gail Goodman. Awesome. Enjoy. Uh, with no more ado, I want to turn things over uh, to David Cancel, the founder of Performable, uh, for his conversation with Gail Goodman, the CEO of Constant Contact. Thanks, Scott. Good morning, everyone. Uh, how many people here have never used Constant Contact? Oh, there are some. So uh, for the few of you who don't know Constant Contact, uh, and I've used Constant Contact myself, I want to introduce Gail Goodman, who's the CEO of Constant Contact. And... Um, being a first-time CEO myself, uh, this is a joy to interview Gail. There's a lot of information that I want to sh- extract out of her, and I hope that it's uh, entertaining for the rest of you. So, Gail, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Constant Contact? Uh, sure. So, uh, Constant Contact got started just over a decade ago, I guess, I guess uh, 12 years now. Uh, founded in Randy Parker's attic. Uh, Randy Parker was an MIT grad. Uh, great idea. Let's help small businesses. This mm-hmm. was... <laughs> Got to put yourself all the way back. It's now, you know, 96, 97. Uh, the Internet is really hard to use. It's going to be hot, but to build a web page is hard. Uh, let's make it really easy for small businesses to stay in touch with their customers using great-looking email, which sounds immensely simple now but was incredibly complicated mm-hmm. then. Uh, and let's make it really affordable for them. We didn't really know what that meant, but, you know, I think the first VC pitches basically said $20 a month. <laughs> And uh, the real question was, could you build a business where you could make money at $20 a month and could we make it easy enough that small businesses could use it? And tons of, you know, tons of challenges between then and now where uh, today we have 375,000 customers uh, paying us what turned out to be an average of $37 a month uh, once we get the pricing structure right and some cross-sell and upsell opportunities. And we'll do $170 plus million in revenue this year. At $37 a month. So I guess the answer is yes, you can build a business to scale. Uh, but in, that's hindsight that tells us that there were many, uh, many, many years of that still being the outstanding question. Uh, any of you doing software as a service, they talk about the slow ramp of death. Well, that slow ramp is even slower uh, and more painful at $30 a month. So, uh, you know, 1,000 customers was fun, <laughs> But didn't pay, you know, could only pay one of us, you know, and so on. So um, lots of stories around how we survived uh, that long, slow ramp of death uh, at a low-dollar recurring revenue model and how great it is to be past that and in the scaling point. It sounds so obvious now, but having lived through that time, uh, targeting small business owners, uh, making it cheap, and raising venture capital sounds like craziness, right? It was craziness. sounds absolutely crazy. And so... uh, Amazing that uh, Randy and yourself had that vision to build that business and that you could do it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you come to Constant Contact? 
How did you find Randy? Yeah, so I had come out of Open Market, which was an early e-commerce player. Mm-hmm. So I definitely wanted to do something internet, internet commerce, you know, psyched up about that. Um, uh, open Market was spawning CEOs right and left. I think there were 10 of us uh, who left Open Market. I think there's at least one more of us in the audience. There he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, mm-hmm. You know, if they could do it, I could do it. You know, I was certain, sure, not sure. I'd never been a CEO before. Kind of, kind of wanted to give it a try. It was the wild west days of the internet, right? This is before the first bubble burst, so it's '98, early '99, um, and I just was inspired to maybe, maybe try it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was simultaneously hedging my bets and interviewing for uh, VP marketing jobs. Uh, so those of you who know uh, Chris Heidelberger at Channel Wave. Uh, I, I really credit him with a lot of this because I went to interview for the VP of marketing job at Channel Wave, and he said, what are you doing here? You could do my job better than me. Don't stop interviewing for VPs. Go start something. And it really was the final kick in the butt I needed uh, to really say, all right, I've got to go find myself a startup. And then I started pitching VCs that they should put this person who'd never run anything in front of their, you know, in front of their business. But I had some reasonable organizational scale experience. I'd been a general manager of a you know forty million dollar but you know I probably had more experience than most startup CEOs have in terms of running uh, large scale organizations and, and delivering results there. Uh, and finally, I met a VC who the day before had been pitched by Randy, and he did a little matchmaking, and the rest, as they say, is uh, history. And you found that you could you gelled with Randy right away, or was that? Well, we definitely, we definitely took a lot of time getting to know each other. I'd mm-hmm. say we took about two months. Uh, they had, it, at that stage, they had gotten some angel money that was a bridge round into the, first, into the A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that angel money came from the co-founders of Marcam, John Campbell and mm-hmm. Paul Margolis. And John Campbell was helping Randy find a CEO. And I do recall they did 30 background interviews on me. So they were clearly nervous about getting to know mm-hmm. me. Uh, it felt like saying they, they actually found my high school boyfriends. It was like crazy. <laughs> right? yeah. I was getting calls from people disconnected, three degrees. Somebody's calling about you. What's that about? So they clearly did their homework on me. Uh, I did the same serious homework on them. Uh, but the biggest thing I needed to know was that I could have passion for the product. So the best thing I did was even before I took the job, I went to a trade show with these guys. I was like, I'll just stand in the back of the booth. I won't say anything. Like 30 seconds later, I'm in the front pitching, yeah, right? Yeah. And that was when I knew, right? Yeah. I, I had passion for the product and what we did and loved talking to our prospective customers. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was partly seeing that passion that helped them know that mm-hmm. I was the right, right person for the yeah. job. And Randy was ready for this transition to give up? Yeah, you know, yes and no. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was a learning curve together. Yeah. Yep. So what do you think your, the hardest struggles were making that transition to first-time CEO once you got over the matchmaking? You know, so the thing that was, I think, the toughest for me was that I was immediately sucked into fundraising. And that was totally foreign country for me. I had never raised money. I had never worried about cash, right? Mm-hmm. I'd always been in larger organizations, and suddenly, it was all about how much cash we had and what we could do. And um, I was spending a ton of time out of the business, on the road, you know, pitching my brains out. Um, and then you combine that with just a ton of things I needed to do that were urgent but not strategic. How are we going to pay people? What should our benefits be? Where are we going to, you know, what, what rent? Where are we going to be? Right? It seemed like every day was filled with tons of tasks 
that had nothing to do with figuring out the business model. Uh, so I think that was the biggest pain point at the beginning was like, when do I get to work on the business? When do I get to work on the business? And how do I keep the team focused and working on the right things when I'm not there so much? That became easier as we got bigger and more mature. But this was, you know, this was six people in a basement. So that's one of the, you brought up one of the hardest things I think a CEO has to do, which is say no to new product ideas and features and markets and partners. And um, how did you approach that? How did you learn to say no? Well, you know, we very quickly, I think, figured out that there were just a couple of things we needed to know. And the biggest one was, can you make money at $30 a month? (laughs) Just really tough question. And we sort of parsed that question down to, can we attract customers at a reasonable cost of acquisition? And can we convert them and keep them? Mm -hmm. Right? And so we got very focused on those two pieces, building channel and the conversion retention formula. And I think we got those things right. what it turned out was we had few enough resources that it was sort of like, these two months we work on channel, these two months we work on conversion and retention. We were never big enough to do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would seem like when we were working on product conversion retention things, there'd be these channel partner product needs that would build up until they were like urgent and ready to go through the roof, and then we'd go there, and then it'd be like two months, and we hadn't added anything to the product, and we'd go back. and So we were swinging back and forth between there. Um, I guess the the priorities were always urgent enough that when the board then said maybe we should go up market, it was like, are you crazy? Right? We got to figure stuff out where we are first. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of that was about stick, you know, knowing what at least at the and this is the t- I think a tough tension, right? You pick a, mar- a market based on some research and some gut instinct, and then you got to have it. You got to give it enough time to figure out whether it works but not be so inflexible that you don't move if you're learning things about it that don't work. And so how do you know when you've given it enough time? You know, the hunting for the model versus focus. And one of the things we definitely, I hear a lot now, is fail fast. Right? Try things and fail fast. Well, that's great, but you can get to a lot of false negatives, too, because if you try them with not enough scale or not, and not, not the right product, right? Did, did you fail because you didn't do it right, or did you fail because it's the wrong thing to do? And knowing when you've got a real kind of the right thing there. So I'll give you one really crisp example. So everything was a free trial, right? Great, it's the internet, everything's free. So not surprisingly, trial-to-pay conversion was a big internal metric for us. What percent of our trialers could we get to pay? And, and not surprisingly, the economic model swung pretty big on that. Uh, I'll share what the original launch number was, uh, just so you can understand the order of magnitude of the challenge we had ahead of ourselves. We don't share our current number we consider quite proprietary. But uh, our first version of the product was 4%. Model did not work at 4%. Um, but the spreadsheet showed us the model would work at 20 And the question was, could we get to 20 uh, I will tell you, we are significantly past 20 now. Um, and so we were, there were clearly some product things to fix, and da 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 and then it was all sorts of other questions. And uh, we'll come to one of the things that I, one of, my, um, uh, one of my lessons learned is talk to a lot of other people, 
get a CEO peer group of some sort. And one of the groups I had was, actually I ended up with two, but one was an informal breakfast club of other people building small business internet apps. So it was Rick Falk from Intranets, Sam Zales from BuyerZone, uh, Steve Sidness from BizLand, Don Bulens from Trellix, and me. So five Boston companies all building small business apps in the 2000-2001 world. And Rick was doing something crazy. He was actually calling free trialers and welcoming them on board and helping them get started. And it doubled his trial-to-pay conversion. Mm -hmm. So we decided to try it. The reason this is a great example is three months in, I would have told you it was failing miserably. And six months in, we said, to heck with the control group. Let's have them call everybody because it was working so well. Right, another lesson, everything has to have a control group. Right, Everything has to have a control group. So you know whether did the product just get better or is the call actually making a difference. Uh, but literally, there was a point where we had so few trials and they were improving conversion so much. It was like, to heck with the control group. Have them call everybody. But that was something where you had to get, let it last long enough. You know why? Because three months is not enough to figure out a sales model. The people that got, you know, we had three guys, so it wouldn't be, we started with three people, so it wasn't going to be a false positive because it was just the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Right? You got to design the experiment with enough richness that you know that you learned what you learned. And then we, they needed to learn the product and the customer base and how to sell. And, this, you know, and not surprisingly, they were sales guys. So guess what they did when they first came? They sold. The secret here was actually not selling to our customer base. Small businesses hate to be sold to, and they really didn't need to be sold. They needed to be taught how to use email marketing in their business. And when they stopped selling and started understanding barriers to adoption and smoothing the path and helping them understand what kind of content to write and what kind of frequency, when they became coaches instead of salespeople, the model clicked. But it took a couple iterations to figure that. Not surprisingly, it took a couple iterations to figure that out. So I think the big challenge for you is you're hunting for the model, right? How do you design, you know, how do you put enough tests in the water and do that with enough confidence that you're getting the right answers? And by the way, there were plenty of tests that didn't work at all, right? So how do you know when to pull the plug on them? Have they run long enough? Um, So we were... You know, we were always, oh, and the other thing, we were always hunting for the silver bullet. There had to be a silver bullet, right, that was either going to drive lots of people to the website and start the top of the funnel or drive conversion in the bottom of the funnel. And the answer is there is no silver bullet. It's a million incremental improvements to the business model. So we had lots of ahas, but we never found the goddamn silver bullet. just wasn't out there, Right. That's funny. So all of these lessons that you have now sound obvious 10 years later. Yeah, of course. How did you buy yourself enough leeway early on with your investors to, to experiment and not grow prematurely? Well, you know, to, to be honest, we were, um, we were probably always at the hairy edge of running out of money and not getting the next round. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote two shutdown plans for the business because we weren't getting enough traction fast enough. And this was... You know, uh, this was the horrible post-bubble dark days. Mm-hmm. And every venture guy we had had to make choices in their portfolio. Which of my investments do I continue to fund and which do I cut off? Mm-hmm. And we were always on the bubble. Um, 
I think the only thing that kept us alive is that every chart we had was going up and to the right, right? New customers per month up and to the right, conversion up and to the right, retention up and to the right. You know, and you could see small business is a big market. That was never the debate, right? 29 million small businesses, the spreadsheet was always beautiful, right? If, they, if we can improve conversion 2% and get retention up you know, 10%, oof, right? The thing just kept hockey sticking, right? We had like five different versions of the hockey stick. The, the, the inflection point just kept getting a little later, right? <laughs> so you could believe the business model and all the metrics were moving. And so it was always about give us enough time to get to the inflection point. Um, and I would say... Um, there wasn't any magic there. It was going out and working every VC partnership team, not just the VC on the board, but the whole damn partnership. I spent a ridiculous amount of time raising money. Worth yeah. it now. Yep. Frustrating in the time period. Very frustrating in the time period. So that's an interesting thing that most people don't know about working a partnership, right? It's just no matter who your partner is, right, they're part of a partnership, and they have to convince a room full of other you know, uh, people who want to say no, right, to do this deal. So that's an important lesson. It is right? a Go very ahead. important lesson. Don't, uh, just because your guy says he's got the partnership covered, uh, don't believe him. Make sure that you're at least once a year in front of the whole partnership, giving them an update on the business, preferably after your best quarter of the year. <laughs> Not when you need money, yeah. right? So were the, were the internal metrics that you were tracking what convinced you to keep going with this model? Right, and not panic? It was a combination of that and the sheer rabid enthusiasm of our customers. So one of the other uh, ahas Mm -hmm. was small businesses are immensely referring in nature if they love something. And so the biggest thing that started our model really cranking was uh, our small businesses started telling their friends. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, And they started writing us you know, you saved my business reviews. At the beginning, most of our customers were online merchants who were trying to do internet marketing in the early dark days. And it turns out, you know, your most likely prospect is the guy who already bought from you. And if you just start marketing to people who already like your products, you actually get a lot of revenue. So we started getting emails. I remember one, and I, by the way, reading these to the whole company, right, uh, was a woman trying to run a craft business. And she basically said, you know, it's my dream to leave my corporate job and do my art, right, for a business. And I tried, you know, I've been trying to do it, and I was about to give up and go back to the dark, cold corporate world. She wrote a really nice note, right? It was like death was about to happen, and I found Constant Contact. And within two months, I got a call from the credit card company because they thought there was fraud going on. The volume on my website had gone up so much. I will never have to go back to corporate. Thank you, Constant Contact. Right, just okay. I'll meet ten more VCs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm making such a difference, mm-hmm. and the energy of the customer was a really important part of what kept me going mm-hmm. and the whole team. Yep. And one of the things that I think we did really well was bring that energy into the company, whether it was through reading letters, whether it was through actually bringing the small businesses mm-hmm. in. Um, we very early on said we got to remember who our customer is because they're not us. That was part of the reason was because they're not us. Uh, we are, you know, they are not technical. They are not spending their time in email marketing. 
If we forget who they are, we won't design to the right point. So very early on, we started company meetings every week, and every week we told a customer story so that everybody in the company remembered who our customer was and what we were, why we were doing what we were doing, which really wasn't about the VCs, and it wasn't about us and our personal wealth creation opportunity. It was really about helping this customer base. Mm-hmm. And so how did you go about picking pricing in the early day? How did you test pricing? Just a dart? <laughs> pricing is hard. So we looked at what else the small business was buying that might be a reasonable price point that they would evaluate us against, which at the time was their website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't feel like we could charge much more than they were paying for website hosting. Yep. And we wanted, it to be, um, we wanted it to be a variable model with usage. Uh, interestingly enough, the natural instinct would have been by email sent. Uh, but we did. We, we were very big on talking to our customers. We're talking about focus groups, not professional focus groups. Us with five customers, mm-hmm. right? People say I can't afford to do market research, right? Get out and talk to customers. You can do it. it doesn't take many before you know the answer. And we heard a bunch of things. I need to. It needs to be predictable. Uh, it needs to be understandable. Right? And uh, we knew it needed to not create a disincentive to usage. That retention was about usage. We needed people to use the product. And charging people based on email sent meant they would hesitate over the send button. Is this worth spending the money on? We wanted them using the product. So we went based on the mailing list size. They knew how big their list was. They didn't know, by the way, how many mails they were going to send a month. They'd never done it before. Uh, and that actually ended up originally being a huge competitive differentiation. Now the entire industry prices the way we price. But we were the first guys to go to list-based versus numbers of emails sent, and it was just a good instinct. So once you discovered pricing, I think the next big hurdle is modeling out your lifetime value for a customer. How long did that take, and how did you go about that? So the, the actual lifetime revenue of a customer yeah. was very straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. It was revenue per month, life. Mm-hmm. If you know your attrition, right? One over the attrition rate is your life. It's a mathematic formula. Mm-hmm. So we kind of knew the revenue value. It was always about, so what's the cost of acquisition? Mm-hmm. And we knew we could get better at that. We knew everything got better at scale, mm-hmm. right? Uh, sales and marketing gets better at scale. Conversion gets better at scale. Um, so... We had an idea what it was, mm-hmm. and then we basically said at scale, we think we can get at least a 50% improvement, and now the world looks okay. That was sort of a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. We've actually done much better than a 50% improvement, but at the time it was just a, you know, what are you going to sell to the VCs? <laughs> uh, yeah. Wild-ass mm-hmm. uh, guess on what we could do for mm-hmm. efficiency at the front of the funnel. Uh, we've done better than that at scale. Yeah. One of the tensions that I feel every day, and most uh, other CEOs that I talk to, is preventing your company from... You know, you always want to optimize for your own problems, right? And really, you need to be focused on solving customer problems. But something like optimizing pricing or lifetime value or um, your cost is your problem, right? It's not your customer's <laughs> problem. So how did you, you keep your, uh, your team going? Yeah, I think we were a little lucky in that there was a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. So, you know, trial-to-pay conversion was our big metric, and that meant making it easier to use our product. So that was a win for us and a win for the customer, which was very helpful. So we didn't have that tension in that particular one. I think the place we felt that the most was, you know, the, the board wanted us to go up market. Mm-hmm. Like we sold a, cust- a couple of customers at $1,000 a month, and they were like, 
wow, that really jumped the revenue model. We should do more of them. Um, but truthfully, they were serendipity. They were people who had larger lists who were okay with, you know, with a lower-end product and, wanted to, you know, and were willing to buy in our model and all of that. And I think if, we had, uh, if we'd gone that direction, we it would have been a different business. might have been good, but it would have been a different business. Uh, and the second thing is they wanted us to get multi-product really fast, yep. right? Uh, there was always a worry that email marketing wasn't big enough to be a standalone category, right? Most frequent question I got at VCs, right? Why isn't this just a feature of somebody else's product? Why is this a standalone? Some of you have heard that before. Um, you know, how is this a standalone business? Um, by the way, it's still a question I get. Now I get it from Wall Street instead of VCs, but it's still, it's still a question I get. And so this get multi-product, get multi-product. But it was really clear uh, organizationally that we weren't ready for that for years. Mm-hmm. So that was one I just uh, fought off by saying, here are the five other priorities that make that not the right thing to do now. And luckily had the board relationships to pull that off. Very luckily. Yeah. So good job. I have a million more questions, but I want to open it up to the rest of the audience. There are mics on either end. If anyone has any questions for Gail, if not, I'll keep asking them. Congratulations on your business. Thank you. Uh, I really applaud your customer-centric viewpoint of the way you built the business. So now that you have achieved some scale and you're not in an attic or a basement anymore, how do you bring the voice of the customer into your business today? Good, uh, Great question. Um, so believe it or not, we're, we're now at uh, 675 employees, and we just gave up weekly company meetings two months ago. Now they're every other week, and we still tell a customer story. Uh, we also uh, ask every employee to spend at least an hour every six months sitting on the phones listening to our customer. But now we have much more organized voice of the customer uh, processes as well. So uh, our uh, product owners, we're all Agile Scrum, our product owners are uh, rapid usability fanatics, and we just have a regular process. We have people in to do usability testing every other week, and products line up to go through that. No product gets to market without being hands-on in our customers. We, keep, you know, we make sure we stay fresh there. But we also listen to our customers through a monthly customer SAT survey where there's a free-form text box that they can fill in, and we read that. And then we have organized internal processes where anyone can make a suggestion for how to improve the product. It's like we care at constantcontact.com. They send emails to that. The employee base sends in over 1,000 emails a month with ideas for how to improve our product. And we read them all and organize those. And then this year, we actually put a full employee incentive plan in place that rewards uh, all of us for customer SAP. So we put our money where our mouth is. Literally, everybody's going to get paid on how happy our customers are from their point of view. So we spend a lot of time making sure we don't lose that because I think that actually is our cultural long-term competitive advantage, uh, which is subtle from the outside but not from the inside. said you were trying to uh, stick to doing one thing, doing it well, but with social media and, and email actually dropping off with people communicating in new ways, how have you addressed the social media revolution, and yeah. how are you weighing the different options of how to move beyond if you are email marketing? Yeah, so, so the, email, the fight to stay in email marketing was five years ago when, they, you know, when we were $10 million in revenue and they're trying to get us multi-product. Uh, we are now multi-product, so we have... Uh, 
four major products today, email marketing, event marketing, so helping you do online registration and payment for events, online survey, uh, and now social media marketing. So just a month ago or so, we bought a small business out of California, Nutshell Mail, which is our first entry into social media marketing. Uh, We believe social media is something small businesses can effectively use to grow their business. I don't think it's actually a replacement for email marketing, interestingly enough. The most aggressive social media marketers are using more email rather than less. So I think there's a little bit of a misconception that one replaces the other. They do totally different things. Um, But we think social media can really help small businesses grow their business by really getting them to take their passionate customers, get them talking in the social media space so that they get enhanced reach, reviews, and rankings that support their business as people as they go to find new customers. So definitely building a set of tools to help them do that. I think we have one, time for one more. How much money did you raise? What were your experiences with the types of investors that you had? And could you have done it on less? <laughs> well, hindsight being twenty twenty, of course I could have done it on less. But um, if I just hadn't gone in all the wrong directions yeah. along the way. And if you um, didn't start the company in 2000, yeah. go through. Uh, so. But... Um, we really raised so, – so we raised money in a very slow and painful way. We kept doing these little, like, $5 million down rounds because that was the most painful possible way to do it. Um, but I like to say the – until we got to some scale, it was sort of $21 million that we raised. But then we did what was, uh, like, a mezzanine round of an incremental 15 uh, – but that was with Greylock at a post money over $100 million. That's sort of a, That was a different... So I'd say it took 21 to build the business. Then we raised another 15, really to help us restructure the board to go public because we had a bunch of uh, smaller, early-stage VCs on the board who had a, a differing set of opinions about the right exit strategy for the business, and we needed to get alignment. So um, definitely had a wide... I don't have time to tell all the stories, but a wide range of VCs not all of whom knew how to swing for the fences once it was obvious that the fences were possible. Uh, and it forced me to do that final round to restructure the board so we could think big. All right. We need to have another conversation about that last pit there. Yeah. Restructuring the board. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. so thanks, everyone, for coming out. Thank you, Gail, yep. for taking Thank the time. You. Appreciate it.